Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org and I'm joined by my colleague, analyst and journalist at Ukraine World and Internews Ukraine, Maxim Panchenko. Hello, Maxim. Hello. Thanks so much for joining me in this episode. So traditionally, we are talking about the last month, what have ha- what has happened in Ukraine and around Ukraine in October 2021. So what were the key events and trends, Maxim, in your opinion? So first of all, we need to talk about the developments around the pandemic because Ukraine has had a surge in cases and is now facing lockdowns across the country. Of course, we're going to talk about the escalation in the east, uh, which has been connected with the use of the Bayraktar drone by Ukraine's uh, armed forces for the first time, and this led to quite numerous repercussions. We're going to talk about the blockage of the OSCE mission in Donetsk, and uh, we're going to briefly dwell upon the justice reform and its development in, in Ukraine. On the international plane, we're going to talk about the recent EU-Ukraine summit that happened on the 12th of October and what were the outcomes of the summit. We're going uh, to talk about the gas-related tensions in Europe and, of course, uh, dwell on the broader energy-related topics uh, and how they translate into geopolitical games in the European continent. Yeah, these are very interesting topics. And uh, as you can see, we try to combine both foreign policy issues and internal policy issues. We will start with pandemics, obviously, because uh, it is very critical issue right now in Ukraine. We can uh, we can maybe talk about really dramatic, dramatic situation with the with the increase of cases, with the increase of deaths. For example, today we have uh, we have uh, uh, over 20,000 cases, 23,000 cases in Ukraine. The total number is approaching 3 million for the whole uh, for the whole time. And we have today 720 deaths. And the whole number the, is about 70,000 uh, 70, deaths. So uh, the situation is really worrying. Um, many regions are applying the red zone. Kyiv now, right now in the red zone. And the government is basically... Uh, making very tough uh, decisions, for example, following the general practice in Europe, for example, that you can enter the public transportation or you can en- enter the public uh, public places while vaccinated or while tested. And this actually produces a collapse, a collapse of the transport system, for example, in Kiev. Um, uh, and the uh, problems, for example, people are trying to get vaccinated as soon as they can, but you cannot vaccinate in two two days right so the the big question is of course to the citizens why so a little number of people have been vaccinated and the question is of course for government the government the 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 Zelensky administration the health ministry the the uh, the cabinet of ministers could have predicted the situation already in spring so what can you say, Maxim, about this? Well, of course, a part of the blame should go to, to the government and to the authorities. But on the other hand, maybe the restrictions, the draft restrictions that have been introduced, maybe this isn't the necessary evil. Because first of all, um, Ukraine faces an unprecedented number for, I think, an enti- the entire Europe when it comes to the number of those who are not ready to vaccinate and those who are the so-called anti-vaccinators uh, anti-vaccine activists in Ukraine, their number uh, soars to the stunning, I think, 43 or something percent in Ukraine, uh, which is um, very disturbing because the sheer scope of the number is such that uh, it will not not help to make the collective immunity in Ukraine. Because even if everybody else who concedes to being um, vaccinated will be vaccinated, still this will not contribute to herd immunity because 50-something percent is not enough for that to happen. So maybe the staff restrictions are justified, even though they are painful for so many. And uh, yes, of course, I um, agree with you that not everybody can be vaccinated in one day. But at the same time, the Mm, the the um, pace at which Ukrainian authorities are now able to vaccinate Ukrainians is stunning too, because uh, as far as I can uh, understand, around 270,000 people get vaccinated every day, which is uh, stunningly much. 
and uh, yeah it's it's a huge it's a huge figure indeed and uh yes well astonishing astonishing how the government is now accelerating everything and ukraine is probably a country which uh, sleeps for very long long time but then accelerates things in the last moment and we can ask a question whether this acceleration is a good uh, good thing because we can imagine for example how many fake certificates people are getting because uh, ukrainians are very good very well trained to get these fake certificates and uh, this is also a, a worrying development that can that, that can uh, take place. But indeed, the this the pace that you mentioned, uh, over two hundred thousand vaccinations per day, is a probably good pace. But uh, we will see whether whether it will really produce results and whether people who are anti-vaccinators will will actually change their minds because we see lots of situation when the when the necessity when the reality around them pushes them to to change their minds. So uh, this is the situation, and of course we have a huge problem with, for example, the emergency cases with the hospital. The hospitals are full. The emergency services are having about fifty thousand, if I am not mistaken, fifty thousand emergency calls, uh, ambulance calls per day, which is a big number, twice as big as pre-pandemic situation, which, of course, makes a, a huge load on the public health system. And But again, uh, the question which can which we can raise, there are two questions. The, the, the whole education level of the citizens, we understand that, for example, of course, the anti-vaccination uh, rhetoric, anti-vaccination propaganda is all over the world, but in Ukraine it's aston uh, astonishingly efficient. And the second level, uh, and, and this, uh, this uh, refers to the case where the Ukrainians trust science at all, right? Uh, in this kind of a quite a secular society, post-Soviet society, in which the majority of people, like 90% people, of people went to universities, but it seems that they didn't get the education in the universities, which is uh, worth uh, worth its name. And and the second issue is, of course, well, everybody knew about what is what is what is coming. Everybody knew what was what was going already in, in spring and in summer, but uh, why there was no big program of vaccination during summer so people just went on holidays and that's it and this uh, one one also important issue is that we had suddenly we had during the pandemics we have the local elections for example in kharkiv because as, as mm -hmm. our listeners might know uh kharkiv long-term mayor mr kernes has died uh, uh, recently and uh, we had mayor elections in kharkiv with no real um real limitations because the people who are really having power in Kharkiv just wanted to be leg legalized as soon as possible and they did so this is also a worrying thing right what yes. do you think yes i i agree and uh, coming back to to what you just said about why uh, mass vaccination and the restrictions could not take place earlier i think there are two factors that contributed to this first of all ukrainian economy was not that resilient and maybe still is not that resilient after uh, a year and a half of of the pandemic um, to have uh, been able to endure another lockdown uh, or such restrictions uh, for unvaccinated in summer, for instance. Uh, so maybe that was the motivation of uh, of the authorities, uh, you know, not to introduce uh, those kind of that, that kind of restrictions as uh, as long as possible. Uh, but at the same time, I think a big uh, reason was the undecisiveness of Ukrainian authorities per se, uh, inherent uh, indecisiveness, because uh, of, as usually. The authorities may have um, hoped for the best, that maybe the pandemic will slow down, maybe more people will uh, change their minds about vaccination. So yes, that was a strategic, um, a strategic drawback, I would say. So yes, either way, uh, here we are, and this is not the best picture. But uh, when, when we take a snapshot of how this is happening right now, uh, well, we might be on the right track introducing those restrictions and vaccinating people on that march on, on that big of a scale yeah and it's very important that while during the first waves of pandemics the, the coronavirus was coming from the west from the mostly from the western countries now we can see that it's coming from the south and we can uh, hypothesize that it's coming mostly from the fact that many people went to the summer holidays on the sea beaches and of course yes. there is there was there was nothing i have myself been on the uh, seaside uh, in august uh, on the black sea so there was just no no sign that the people are protecting 
protecting themselves, that the people are wearing masks, for example. Well, you cannot even say about uh, nobody was quite, nobody was asking about vaccination, etc. So this is this is also shows when when I'm when I when I'm talking about what government should have done. Well, I'm not, not talking about lockdowns, of course. I'm talking about the vaccination program and of some things that are adopted in Europe, for example. And this also shows that Ukraine, uh, well, it, it tries to be in Europe. It tries to get uh, faster with the EU integration. It does does many good things. It does some many bad things. But uh, there is something should happen. Uh, it's happening, but quite slowly. Europe should come to the minds of people, right? To the way they they plan their lives and yes. uh, to the way they they care about the environment. Because the lack, uh, I mean, the the absence of this kind of willingness to vaccinate is also shows the irresponsibility of both the government, the authorities, and the citizens around people uh, surrounding themselves. So people are just imagining that they are living in a kind of a island isolated right like uh, uh, isolated individuals but let's hope it will it will end um, uh, it, it will end well as, as we repeat the, the pace of the vaccination is huge so several hundred thousand uh, vac- vaccination doses per day so we can hope that in several months uh, well but still let's let's not forget that Ukraine is a huge country with 40 million people at least 40 million mm-hmm. let's talk about the military issues uh, you mentioned the escalation in the east so it's interesting that uh, in the recent days we have different information uh, from what is going on the, on Ukraine uh, Russia borders the american media and the western media were reporting uh like washington post i think politico Uh, foreign policy were reporting about the accumulation of troops, of Russian troops on Ukraine-Russia border and uh, Russia-Belarus border. While uh, Ukrainian authorities, the National Council on uh, Security and Defense, uh, was saying that it is not true that the the, the troops are not uh, concentrating, not moving in the Ukrainian direction, but at the same time, they they what Ukrainians were saying, it's not that they are not there. So Ukrainians are saying, look, there's probably not a mobilization of troops, but they are there. They are there. So the the Russian troops, which were really accumulated on the border. Order during during spring, they didn't really leave the positions, and uh, they are ready to for a, a for a again a military aggression at any moment. And they are not in defensive position, but in offensive position. So they are not contrary to what Russian propaganda is saying. They are not uh, they are not true. They are not preparing to defend Russia from a Ukrainian invasion, but they are rather preparing to enter Ukrainian territory. And uh, one important issue is is the, the 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 fact that Ukrainians used the the drone, the Bayraktar drone, which they purchased from the Turkey, uh, to attack uh, the positions of uh, pro-Russian uh, military uh, in the occupied territories. So, what can you say about this, Maxim? Well, first of all, I'll, I'll comment a, a bit on the um, confusion that exists around the uh, movement of the Russian troops. Yes, it, it's a very weird situation because on the one hand, one could not believe that um, Ukrainian authorities would have any um, any reason to hide information if there was any uh, indeed movement and build-up of, of Russian forces near Ukraine's border, as Western media say. But on the other hand, um, the Western media that are saying this Mm, they are uh, so uh, so famous and so rep- reputable that it is, it, it is also hard to believe that uh, they may have been misled or are trying to mislead somebody. So yes, that's um, that's a, a, a very interesting question about that. However, at this point, I think uh, what is more important is not the presence of the troops um, in itself near Ukraine's border, because as you rightly said, uh, the troops uh, in quite large numbers have been present near Ukraine's eastern border for very long time. Um, but it's rather about the motivation of those troops to 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 um, to act, and this is what brings us to to this next point you raised about the use of the Bayraktar drone. It should be understood by the international community and by the listeners of this podcast that this was um, a, a somewhat uh, exceptional 
thing that happened because even though Ukraine has had these drones, I think there was a bunch of them um, since since 2000, uh, early 2019, uh, because of the bureaucratic process, they were, um, they started being, uh, well, not used by, they were received by Ukraine's army uh, in uh, 2020. And this was the first time when one of these um, drones was used to strike. And an interesting, an interesting thing here is that it was uh, used in defense because the strike of the drone, um, it uh, was targeted against the D-30 howitzer that was used at the, at the same at the, that same moment, uh, to uh, to shell Ukrainian um, Ukrainian uh, settlements, so that was essentially in, in in defense. But Russian propaganda makes it look like that this was a deliberate attack uh, by the Ukrainian armed forces, and uh, not only was it deliberate, they say, but it also was unprovoked and it was unprecedented because again, drones have never been used before to strike uh, the separatist targets uh, by Ukrainian forces. So Russia tries to make it something to look like something unprecedented and something that deserves a harsh response on the part of separatists and, of course, on the part of Russia who begs them. So this is where the situation spills over into the political um, spectrum. So we, we are treading some very dangerous waters here. And of course, nothing is is foreseen, but uh, Ukraine these days needs to be very attentive and very cautious about what it what it does next in this sense. Exactly, and there is a <clears throat> big po- political dimension of it, as you say, for, because the, dur- the drones are produced in Turkey. So Turkey, of course, doesn't want to get involved into uh, kind of a Ukrainian-Russian conflict or Russian-Ukrainian conflict because uh, we believe that uh, the, the, the key responsibility is in, on Russia for starting and maintaining this conflict, this war. But uh, Tur- the Turkish authorities, of course, uh, started saying, well, this is not a Turkish drone because it was sold to Ukrainians, so don't, don't call it a Turkish drone. Mm-hmm. But uh, in, in this triangle, it's a very important triangle because Turkey is trying to maintain the relations both with Russians and with Ukrainians and support, for example, the the Crimean topic and the the uh, accusing the uh, like uh, for supporting, for example, the the Crimean Tatar cause, which is which is also very important. And we know the very difficult uh, very difficult relations between Turkey and Russia in history. So uh, this is a very you know complicated triangle. Uh, at the same time, of course, the drone attack is uh, can 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 be dangerous because so far the war in Donbas was not an was not a aviation war not mm-hmm. a drone war, it was an artillery war, uh, the war with uh, imprecise artillery shelling, uh, so-called, so-called grads and, and everything else, which produced lots of killings, lots of suffering, lots of deaths, lots of dist- uh, destruction. But still, it is not an aviation war. And uh, it is, uh, of course, very important to keep it like that. Uh, but at the same time, Russians are seeing that Ukrainians are having these drones, and this is this can also be kind of a, a, a kind of a factor that can limit their their willingness to attack or to expand uh, and to to proceed more deeply into Ukrainian territory, which basically everybody I think here in Ukraine is kind of a co- cautious and, and concerned with because Russians can can indeed do this. And as we n- numerously pointed out in our podcast, uh, right now Ukraine is almost encircled. Uh, it is It can be attacked from the south, from Crimea. It can be attacked uh, from the east, obviously. It can be attacked from the north, both from Russian territory and eventually from Belarusian territory if we have a situation when uh, Russia swallows Belarus, which is also a danger. Another important issue... Uh, another important issue uh, in the in the conflict in eastern Ukraine, in the war in eastern Ukraine, was it happened in uh, mid October, and the situation was the uh, the observers of uh, OSCE, Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe, which which is, has uh, a special monitoring mission in the eastern Ukraine. These observers were blocked in their hotel in Donetsk, where they are living, blocked by 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 the. Uh, 
by the uh, pro-Russian militaries, and uh, so they, they were blocked from um, from performing their function it, uh, functions. And it was for the first time in history, because as we know, the uh, special monitoring mission has a mandate to monitor the situation in the occupied territories. As we know, also they are not allowed by Russians uh, to enter the Ukrainian-Russian border. So this is also a very very important issue. But right now they have been even blocked from monitoring the situation in the occupied territories themselves, in, in, in the city as Donetsk. And this is a very important situation because we can see it, we can consider it as a, as Russia's attack on European institutions, even on those European institutions of which Russia is a member of. Don't, don't forget, let's not forget that Russia is a member of OSCE, is a member of a Council of Europe. So recent developments around Council of Europe, around Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe that we were following over the past years, when Russia was kind of a return to Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, despite the fact that it didn't fulfill the conditions of return. So this European institution, which is supposed to protect democracy and human rights in Europe, was basically acting against its principles. Now we have another another thing when uh, the OSCE monitors are blocked from performing their mission. And um, OSCE, let's not forget, also OSCE is a very important organization created as a result of the Helsinki uh, uh, Helsinki negotiations, Helsinki Final Act in '75, and it is an idea of a new type of the world in, which will not be divided into um, as during the Cold War. That despite these divisions, the Eastern and, and Western Europe, for example, they will stick to the same principles, including human rights and including national sovereignty and including inviolability of uh, of borders or territorial integrity. These OSC principles conflict with the vision of Russia, with the vision of the world. Russia wants to come back to Yalta vision of the world, where the world, at least Europe, is is uh, divided into spheres of influence. So we can consider this very particular episode in the mid-October as Russia's blocking the monitors of institutions of which it is a member as a kind of another attack of uh, institutions in Europe. And it is a very important fact and we should not disregard it. Maxim, what do you think? Well, I think that, first of all, unfortunately, the key thing that needs to be understood in this context is uh, that this Russia's meddling with the situation with the OSCE is, unfortunately, again, hybrid. Because it happens uh, through proxies, it happens uh, in the uncontrolled territories. So, yes, everybody understands uh, whose hands it plays into and uh, who must be behind this and who is interested. And, uh, you know, from the previous records of how Russia conducted itself with the OSCE and Council of Europe and all the other things that you have enlisted. Uh, but um, it is... It is virtually impossible here to catch to, to catch Russia in the act, uh, which is very frustrating. And the the second thing that I would like to highlight here is that it is not even um, it cannot even be comprehended, uh, you know, generally why this was done in Donetsk to the to the mission because formally it was said, uh, you know, there was before that there had been a capture of uh, of a separatist by Ukrainian uh, armed forces uh, for his uh, having been surveilling Ukraine's positions. So he was uh, essentially taken as a prisoner of war. And separatists, a group of separatists of about 30 people, rallied the hotel uh, in Donetsk in which uh, the monitoring mission was uh, residing. So it it needs to be understood that this does not make too much logic because not only uh, the rally was against the people who had not done the you know the capturing but also the uh, the monitoring mission has no authority to make ukrainian armed forces to you know to release somebody or to condemn somebody or whatever so that's that's very interesting why why it was done against the mission which makes one thing that this indeed might, must have been you know a statement of a political statement a message to to the european institutions and you know this testifies to everybody that you mentioned previously in this context yeah so let's let's follow this situation let's follow other situations and i, I think you're right because 
pro-Russian forces there uh, are considering, which is basically, I would call them not not so much separatists, but kind of a militia of the military, Russian military enclave, and uh, which is supported by Russia, but obviously uses lots of local citizens, lots of local people mm-hmm. for, for its purposes. Uh, and uh, basically, and let's not forget that many of them have already Russian passports. Uh, but yes. they are really con- considering European institutions as their enemies. So they're not considering OEC as a kind of a mediator, uh, but they're considering probably as part of this, you know, demonic West that is actually fighting against them on the on the, on the part of Ukrainians. I don't know. Let's 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 follow the situation as well. Um, let's come to diplomatic things, geopolitical things. So we had EU Ukraine summit in October, and Maxim, you are as a, as our specialist at Ukraine world in EU Ukraine relations. How can you comment on this summit? Well, this summit was uh, unequivocally a success for Ukraine, and but an interesting th- uh, thing here is that. Uh, it is not only because so, uh, not only so much because of what has been visible about the summit, but also about what has been less visible, because uh, Ukrainian media were predominantly talking about the signature of the uh, Common Aviation Agreement uh, with the European Union as the you know the major, the most expected document from this summit. However. Um, the biggest progress in EU-Ukraine relations, as testified by the summit, uh, can be construed uh, from the diplomatic language uh, in, that was voiced during the summit and uh, that was enshrined into the final document. It, it may seem vague and broad, as diplomatic language usually is to, to, to most people, but it is important that this language included the revision of the association agreement with, uh, with the European Union. And again, this may seem formal to regular citizens, but the scope of this revision is unprecedented for for the Eastern Partnership um, countries that uh, that have this, uh, many of whom have these uh, agreements with the European Union. For the first time, um, the quotas in trade between Ukraine and the European Union are being revised on this large scale, and the annexes to the uh, association agreement are being revised on a, on a large scale. Because previously here was here was the problem. Um, the association agreement uh, had been prepared for signature in 2014 for around 10 years before that. And many, much of the text in the annexes that included references to many of the EU regulations, uh, they are now obsolete. So essentially, uh, we have been living with the uh, with the agreement that contained references to documents from ten to fifteen years ago, and the association agreement works this way: if Ukraine achieves um, certain European standards, it may integrate with the European Union further. EU starts to see Ukraine as a um, as a developed nation as a nation developed to the extent to integrate with uh, with the European Union further, and that and that integration happens. Previously, this um, this played a trick on Ukraine because we were lagging behind. We were complying with what was contained in the in the association agreement, but this information contained in the agreement was in itself obsolete. And now we are updating this uh, this information. Now the annexes have new references to new regulations of the European Union, which can help us accelerate this, uh, um, you know, our movement to the European Union. So this is something very formal, very technical, which is why I think uh, this has gained less media attention than, for, for instance, the aviation agreement. But this is something that uh, that is a broader context. This is something that brings not only our aviation or whatever, but the entire European integration, um, you know, higher on the agenda. So this is what the the biggest outcome, the biggest positive outcome for Ukraine has been. Yes, and this is good because uh, as we at Ukraine World have been repeating many times, uh, it is very important in the situation when we have the association agreement, but we don't have real prospects of joining the EU in the, in the next years. It's really important to build the EU integration of Ukraine as a strategy of small steps. I would say small enlargements when uh, small sectoral uh, enlargements when Ukraine is getting closer to Europe in uh, 
ever more uh, bigger number of sectors. So we have been talking about aviation agreement and it's very good. Uh, I remember that I think it was initialized 10 years ago. So imagine it was initialized during Yanukovych era mm-hmm. in 2011 or 12, I don't remember. So it took 10 years basically to sign it. And maybe it, it will take another years to ratify it fully, but we hope it will at least work uh, in an intermediate way or temporary way. And that will basically mean that European companies will be able to enter Ukrainian market and Ukrainian companies will be a- a- able to enter uh, European markets of uh, aviation uh, transportation. That will mean, uh, of course, that will mean more contacts, more people-to-people contacts. So Ukrainians will be more easily, more cheaper uh, flying to European Union and vice versa. And together with the Schengen area, uh, with the visa liberalization of the with the Schengen area, of course, this will create um, much much better contacts between people. And I think this is the most important thing, actually, if we're talking about about any integration, right? Uh, the second thing that you mentioned is is really really very important. I would not talk about revision of the agreement. I don't know what is the language, what is the proper language, because it doesn't mean that we will the have update. another set the update. of the, the update. update, right? The better to say update because it doesn't mean we will have another round of negotiations, ratification, etc. So uh, we are talking about the update of mostly technical part, but uh, behind this technical part. Uh, our business interests, our business, uh, you know, prospects, industrial prospects, whatever. So Ukrainian businessmen, European businessmen will have better chances to export and to trade between themselves. And that's, that's I think, very, very good. But uh, the important issue is, of course, reforms. And um, I think in the in the past years, it became clear that the key reform, which is which is basically not going on well in Ukraine, is a judiciary reform. So we have under Zelensky another attempt to reload this judiciary reform because the, the previous like vision of it, uh, constructed also c- commonly by Europeans and Ukrainians, was that well we should make judiciary independent. Judiciary was made independent uh, during the first years of Poroshenko rule, but it, it appeared that independent judiciary, which is corrupt, is basically independence of corruption, not of judiciary. So now the whole efforts are to make, to introduce kind of a, yeah, to, to make kind of a reload of the judiciary system so that on the head of it, we have uh, a people with uh, high reputation. And therefore, we have... Uh, the, the key right now is going on about the ethical council, right? Uh, and uh, there was kind of a deadlock in the in this uh, setting up this ethical council, and uh, of course these uh, these institutions that are on, on the top the uh, the high the high qualification commission of judges and the high. Uh, justice council so the reload of these institutions is is the key thing because if we have morally uh, moral people there the people with good reputation they will they will basically play a key role in appointing the judges there is a chance that they will they will they will kind of a gradually start the process of replacing uh, the the system because the reform of the judiciary system is not only the the, the, the problem of institutions or, or legislation, it's a problem of people. And that's the key thing that we are now experiencing in, in Ukraine. When you have European norms transferred to, to the environment, well, people are not Europeans at all in their minds. Uh, when they are narrow-minded, corrupt or whatever, you will not have European reforms here. You will have a, a imitation of European reform. So, and that's the challenge because the challenge is whether these kind of uh, creating of the head of the head institutions of the judiciary will be successful, whether the really people with reputation will be there, whether they will be able to reload the system because the system is, I mean, very powerful, very... Uh, very corrupt. Let's let's be honest and very kind of a self-sustaining. It doesn't mean that we don't have uh, good judges or honest judges, but uh, they can they, they are always like repressed from the system. And I would say that this concerns not only the judiciary but many other systems in Ukraine. So, but it also also means that the process of reform is is very long, very complicated, and as always, the devil is in the details. Let's go to another topic and probably the last topic of our podcast, and it's energy. 
So energy is the key topic right now on the agenda of Europe. And here, Ukrainian case is also the key case for Europe as well, because what uh, Europe is now experiencing, the incredible increase of, of, of gas, gas prices and generally the prices for energy resources. And some people are saying that this is the worst crisis since 1970s. Remember the 1970s deep energy crisis, which led to... Uh, increase of oil oil prices from one dollar to thirty dollars per per barrel, so th- thirty times more. Um, the situation with the gas market on the spot markets of gas in Europe is also very dramatic, and uh, interestingly, that it confirms basically the Ukrainian interpretation or, or Polish interpretation or Baltic states interpretation of the events that Russia is using gas uh, as a, as a tool as an instrument as a weapon doesn't mean that Russia created this crisis but it certainly could act as a as a site that would help Europe to uh, to cope with this crisis it could supply more gas to put uh, the the pressure on on the prices down. Instead, it was just acting, and it would earn money on this, you know. And this, the fact that Russia is not doing this, that it is not supplying more gas, that it's not earning more money, shows that Russia considers energy not as an as economic, but as a geopolitical tool. So. Interestingly, Ukraine proposed to a fifty percent discount on its gas transportation system to make Russian more Russian gas enter Europe. So Russia didn't agree; it's not going to supply its gas through Ukrainian gas transportation system. And why it is going with this this game? Primarily because to push Europe to open up Nord Stream two. Uh, because it is basically saying that uh, as soon as you open up Nord Stream 2 certified, we will supply you with gas and everything will be fine. But that would mean that these plans of circumventing U- Ukraine, Poland, Baltic states, well, Eastern and Central Europe as a whole, bypassing them succeeds. And Russia succeeds in instrumentalizing gas energy and kind of a doing kind of a, a neo-imperialist gas policy. And it's very important, very new, I would say. So it's not new in terms of imperialism, but it's new in terms of how you use energy resources as a kind of a, as a, as a tool of your neo-imperialism. And unfortunately, uh, the Germany doesn't play a very good role in, in this, as we know. Mm-hmm. So how how do you see um, things, Maxim, from this perspective? Well, of course, as you said, Russia did not create the crisis, but uh, gas has always been an ace up its sleeve. So it is no wonder that Russia made use of it. And um, insofar as maybe maybe Russia is not obliged to help Europe, but that would be acting in good faith to do that. And maybe... It, to some extent, it even is quite odd that it does not choose to, to help Europe because um, in other cases, quite recent cases, um, when Europe had problems, for instance, when Italy had problems with, uh, was at the forefront of the pandemic uh, about 18 months ago, um, Russia was offering its vaccines all over Europe and Russia was trying, you know, to play a good cop uh, against the backdrop of, uh, uh, you know, of 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 a bad image it had in Europe. This time, Russia does not try to do that. Russia does not uh, try to to present itself as, you know, as a solution uh, in order to uh, level up the the previously bad image. Uh, And of course, yes, the key to that may be the motive to get the the Nord Stream 2 operating. Uh, This is a very, um, the Nord Stream 2 in itself is a very, complicated issue because of, uh, of of the legal issues and because of the political issues between the Europe the between Brussels and European uh, capitals so yes the the, the, the thing that uh, stops uh, the Nord Stream 2 from inauguration is uh, the legal problem the political problem and also the international problem because um, there is a barrier in the um, in the form of the agreement that has been reached between Angela Merkel and President Biden. We can argue about the extent to which uh, these parties would uh, uh, support Ukraine, uh, you know, if need be. But um, the very fact that there are vociferous international agreements about, uh, you know, 
against uh, this. Um, well, maybe not against, but about this uh, th th this pipeline. Uh, all of this makes the uh, there are too many no uh, knots in this, you know, in these threads, and uh, you know, th the bigger the amount of them, the more complicated in it, it is with uh, for Russia. And Russia essentially just tries to blackmail Europe. It it it, it tries to create a problem so big that uh, Europe will have to turn a blind eye on legal issues, on international agreements, and to adopt an unpopular political decision. So that's the final goal of uh, of Russia. And this explained why, explains why Russia is trying to, uh, you know, to make stakes unprecedentedly, high, unprecedentedly high. And with its uh, demonstrative uh, trading gather with Asia rather than with Europe, and uh, you know, with its uh, blackmail of Europe with the lower amount of gas being transported to, uh, to, to to European capitals, and so on. So yes, this is um, nothing new in terms of the strategy uh, of Russia, but this may be something new in the terms of the scope that uh, uh, of the extent that Russia is willing to go to, to 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 blackmail Europe and to and to reach its goals. So yes. And it's interesting that neither Europe, nor, well, European Union, nor Ukraine were really prepared for this situation. So European Union is still kind of, uh, well, acting as if it is, a, it is a sleepy giant who is deaf for these challenges, as if it doesn't concern really Europe, etc. And as if it, it, it is thinking that what is going on, using gas as a, as a weapon, is a, is a something, well, probably an, an, an exception, probably a deviation, but not as a rule. For Russia, oh. it is rather a rule, right? And... Yeah. Yeah, I wanted just okay. to add that uh, I, I partially agree with you, but at the same time, I don't. I don't think that all the blame needs to be credited to the European Union and to the bureaucracy that failed to see this far. I think that um, well, first of all, it needs to be understood under, understood that uh, there were many factors that contributed to the gas crisis. For instance, the climate uh, during the summer. Which is kind of you know unobvious, but the climate climate in summer that uh, translated into the lower uh, possibility to use the hydropower, it translated in the need to use uh, gas during the summer period, which usually which usually is abnormal. Gas is usually um, mostly uh, used in winter, so this is also something that could not be uh, foreseen. And of course, there is the economy that awakes from the pandemic, and so that that's the global um, tendency, and so on. And of course, uh, it should be understood that um, well, uh, Russia will never uh, will never omit an opportunity to you know to to make Europe to do what it wants. So. Um, I don't think that uh, Europe is necessarily that guilty of what is going on, um, but uh, but there have been some quite objective issues that have prevented both Ukraine and the European Union from from being able to see uh, that far in the crisis. Yeah, that's not really my point. I'm not blaming Europe for today's crisis. I'm saying that. Uh, it's naive and it's quite uh, short-sighted to believe that you can rely on Russia in the, in, the, in the long term. That's true. Europe is 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 itself very dependent on Russian supply. So the question is: Well, Ukrainian gas transportation system is, as we know, I think one hundred for 40 billion cubic meters. So it can really take the, the bulk of the Russian gas supplies to Europe. So if you agree on, on another Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, that means either you are being prepared for even more supplies of, of Russian gas to Europe, which is bad for Europe, mm -hmm. or you're saying that you're just okay with Russia bypassing uh, very important European countries, not only Ukraine, as I said, but also countries of the European Union. And it is also bad. So that is the question. That is the key question. So it's pretending to believe that, well, Russians are thinking about Europe's energy security. Well, it is not. It is not thinking this way. And this situation only confirmed that, well, when Russia, uh, when Russia is seeing 
the crisis in Europe, it doesn't want to help, it, it wants to aggravate the crisis. When it has seen the crisis of yellow jackets in France, it didn't want to help France, for example, to cope with the social economic problems. It just wanted to ag aggravate the crisis by showing the specific, very specific TV picture on, on Russia today, etc. If, if Russia is seeing Europe struggling with the energy crisis, it's not here to help. It is here to kind of aggravate the crisis. So just stay, uh, stay a little bit in distance and saying, well, we, we told you that you were wrong. And of course, uh, Ukraine is also responsible for the situation because Ukrainian policy was also not very, uh, very, very good. I mean, there were good good sides of the policy because Ukrainians succeeded to, after 2014, to reorient its gas transportation system and make the reverse supply from uh, from the European countries to Ukraine. Ukraine also owns uh, underground gas storage facilities that European companies can use to storage their gas and it is very important to use these facilities. They are, both, they are mostly in Western Ukraine, so very close to EU-Ukraine border. But the important thing that Ukraine should understand, and I think we are now understanding it, that there is, I mean, uh, no matter how the situation will evolve, whether Nord Stream 2 will be there or it's not will be there, uh, Ukraine will lose the gas transit from Russia to Europe uh, anyway, because Europe will gradually, uh, well, either, either Russia will transport its gas through Nord Stream or, uh, and this is what will happen, or Europe will uh, go, go even farther with diversification and basically try to find other sources. And we, when Ukraine is telling Europe, well, guys, you're too much dependent on Russian gas, that means that the, the solution that Europeans can take, diversify, diversify energy resources, would mean that Ukrainian gas transportation system would, would not be as loaded as, as, as it was before because Russians, Europeans will try to diminish the, uh, the importance of Russian gas. So what Ukraine should do? Ukraine should uh, reorient its gas transportation system to internal supplies, to supplies within the country. And it's quite a, a, a difficult task because it was designed as a part of the Soviet system, right? Ukraine should increase its own gas production. It is also a, a difficult task. And the situation with NAFTA gas, when, when the kind of a progressive leadership was removed, and now we have a, a situation when NAFTA gas uh, is, not also, is, is losing any kind of its autonomy, commercial autonomy, is turning um, in, into a more, uh, more an instrument, a political instrument as it was, be, as it was before. So it's also ask can we you can ask a question whether Ukrainians are really going a, a a thorough gas sector reform to be independent from Russian gas at all in principle that's very important uh, the second issue is related to energy and it is related to coal basically Russians cut the supplies of coal uh, to Ukraine and uh, if they succeed in launching Nord Stream 2 very quickly they will cut the gas supplies through Ukrainian territory, probably this winter. Putin already said that, well, he's not very sure about the Ukrainian uh, gas transportation system, that it can explode, etc. Of course, this is a bluff. This is a propaganda. Uh, but the situation can turn into, this, into the, the following, that uh, this or next winter, for example, we have Nord Stream 2, we have no supplies through Ukraine, and Ukraine needs the gas also from Russia partially right uh, this uh, and uh, while uh, Russia also cuts coal supplies Ukraine needs to find other suppliers of coal and Ukraine is very dependent on gas and coal in terms of uh, in terms of uh, electricity production in terms of uh, so-called thermal generation right um, this thermal generation uh, we have of course the situation that oligarchs uh, primarily Mr. Akhmetov is very benefiting from this but uh, probably Russians are try will will try to cut the energy supplies uh, to Ukraine this winter and Ukraine doesn't have lots of gas in its uh, in its storage doesn't have lots of coal in its storage so it can really struggle to have uh, to have heat and to have electricity this winter and uh, 
add to this the, the, the very bad situation with the pandemics, add to this the decreasing rating of Mr. President Zelensky and basically splits up in, in his team. We, we talked about the the demarche of Mr. Razumkov, uh, the former head of the, of the parliament. We can enter kind of a disturbance, uh, disturbance period where, for example, we no longer have in Ukraine a monopower Zelensky. We have increased competition, increased uh, maybe popularity of the opposition, both pro-Western and pro-Russian, and maybe increased instability, unfortunately. Uh, so these are also topics that uh, we need to predict. What do you think? I agree with you. Uh, Maxim, what Ukrainian do you think? authorities. Ukrainian authorities and Ukrainian experts uh, keep saying that uh, Ukrainian uh, gas storages are filled uh, up to about 75% or something. Uh, so um, given that the winter is not going to be too cold, Ukraine might, uh, might, might make it through this winter. But first of all, of course, the problem is not only gas, but also coal, as you highlighted, and uh, much of the industry relies on that. And second of all, I think, uh, well, I wonder uh, how much how many examples and how much time needs to pass for Ukraine to finally understand and for its authorities to finally understand that our vision needs to be uh, more longer term, that it needs to be, uh, that, that we need to plan for a broader horizon. Because um, even given these issues with gas that we have now and, you know, the, uh, the problems with Russia and the crisis in Europe and so on, uh, we also need to understand that um, Europe primarily and the world globally is going to depart from the from these uh, sources of energy sooner or later. This may take uh, several decades, but the world would, will be forced to. So our uh, the need in in longer term vision it does not only concern the situation with Russia. It's a much broader issue. So I think the energy sector is uh, the one where Ukrainian authorities need to need to train themselves to look deeper into into the processes and to uh, foresee for a bigger amount of time, because that is the key for not fidgeting um, the way we do it now you know in the in the run up to winter and trying to find some you know ad hoc solutions thank you maxim thank you for this conversation so we tried to cover the key events and trends in ukraine in october 2021 this was a podcast explaining ukraine by ukraineworld.org a website in english about ukraine my name is volodymyr yermolenko i'm the editor-in-chief of ukraineworld.org and i talked to my colleague analyst and journalist at ukraine world and internews ukraine maxim panchenko don't forget to subscribe to our podcast at soundcloud google podcast apple podcast Follow Ukraine World on Facebook and Twitter. So subscribe to our website at ukraineworld.org. We provide lots of interesting podcasts, uh, reports, articles, uh, other information. And stay with us. Mm-hmm.